so I'm pausing there. Okay, so we now turn to page three of those notes. I want to look at the question of what it means to call something good, because good is what moral theology is about, um, as opposed to evil, but what does it mean to call something good? So I want to look at this page, two things really, a good action and a good man. What is that? As I've said there at the top, good is judged with respect to the end. Um, So let me read through what I've said there in the first section. A thing is judged good if it accords with its function. An Aristotelian analysis following Alistair MacIntyre's After Virtue book would say this. A thing is defined according to its function, and its goodness or badness is also defined with respect to its function. So in Aristotle, each thing was of a certain nature, with a corresponding inherent end, and a corresponding defining activity, or function, or ergon. Defining activity is a key thing to note there. So an example, a watch. So if I make an evaluative statement, this is a bad watch. Why? Because it does not tell the time accurately. That the evaluative statement derives its meaning from the function of the watch. With that, the concept of a watch isn't independent of the concept of a good watch. And a good watch you can discern by its activity. So by describing what a watch is, we also describe what a watch ought to do. A watch ought to tell the time accurately. And that therefore rebukes the is-ought issue that David Hume um, proposed in the 18th century. So here we have a watch. Now I use my watch for many things. I have a metal watch. Um, I was using it recently in a new house to push in nails because it's a nice hard surface. But if I said this is a useless watch, I can't hammer in the nails, <coughs> that wouldn't be a reasonable concept. That's not what the watch is for. That the watch has a function and a defining function. It can do other things. So if it's metal, as I say, I can push something in with it. If I had another watch, I might say it was beautiful. I might say it was a fashion accessory. But all of those things aren't the defining function of a watch. And so when we say it's a good watch, it's with respect to that defining function that we're saying it's good. Now, if you want an adequate definition, there are, there are other parameters you'd want to put in there. So a watch has to be portable and lightweight. It's not like a, a grandfather clock. Um, but it's, it's with respect to its function that you say it's good or bad. Now, in some ways that sounds obvious to state, but huge pages of ink were spilled in the 20th century, rejecting the whole notion of good as something easily, easily discernible. Um, but if you follow Aristotle, actually it's quite simple to know what good means. It's just an evaluation of the function of a thing. <coughs> okay, let's not talk about things now, let's talk about human action. A human act is judged good if it is in keeping with the end of that activity. So end being comparable to the notion of function. So for example, the end of eating is nourishment. 
pleasure attaches as a completion of a healthy human act. But pleasure is not the end in itself. Now in St. Thomas, um, he would argue, every completed good act has a corresponding pleasure that is proper to that act and completes the act. So I'm given another example, the intellectual delight of completing an essay. So there is a kind of pleasure that goes with completing an essay. It's not the same pleasure you get when you eat a donut, yes? That each activity has a pleasure proper to that activity that comes with a completion of that activity. And is one of the ways you see that you have completed that. So to leap to another topic, um, the saint is a man of joy. Well, the fact that the joy is there is a sign of that completion there. Um, so eating has an accompanying pleasure, but pleasure isn't the end goal. Nourishment is what eating is about. And Aristotle makes the point that if you try to pursue the pleasure in itself, then everything gets turned upside down and you actually don't even achieve what you're aiming for. So you want to achieve the end and you'll get the pleasure with it. So back to my example on the page there. Gluttonous eating isn't in keeping with the function of eating because it's no longer about nourishment, it's about gluttony, and thus it is evil. It's an action that isn't respecting the end, isn't respecting the purpose of the activity. Second example, the end of the human sexual act is actually a twofold end of procreation and union. Promiscuous sex is contrary to that end, and thus it is an evil act. So you look at some human action, you discern what the end of that action is, and if the action is in keeping with the end, that's what we mean by a good action. Now, as I've noted there, this presumes that man has a nature he does not create for himself, with a set of ends and purposes that defines him and defines his activities. So, in our modern world, where people think, well, I'm free and it's up to me to decide what my purpose is and for me to decide in any activity what I'm seeking. Um, well, that obviously goes contrary to this notion, um, but it is our modern notion. But if you have that freedom as your primary and first thought, you no longer have purpose. Because purpose is something in there before you've discovered it. So you can't have fulfilment, because fulfilment is a matter of an inbuilt end that you didn't choose for yourself. Bottom of the page, a man, so we judge what a, a thing is if it's good, what an action is if it's good. A man is judged good if he achieves his end, his end being beatitude. And all the sub-ends, all these sub-activities of man are related to that ultimate end of beatitude in God. And if I do those individual acts well, I find God in all of those actions because they are related to that ultimate end. So that's the measure of whether an act 
good or evil. Let's look over the page and think briefly about happiness. So here I'm summarising both Aristotle and St Thomas on why the end of human activity is happiness. So I've said before that a good action, a good man, achieves his end. Well, Aristotle says your end is happiness. This is what we mean by a good man, someone who's achieved his end. So I've said here, all things act for a purpose. For example, a plant acts purposefully, growing towards the sun, but it acts by instinct, not by choice. Humans act consciously, but nonetheless they act and move themselves for a purpose. So, non-conscious actions, like my hiccuping, is an action of a man, but it's not a properly human act. I've not chosen it. It's not part of my rational nature. They're not proper to man as man. Next, that all human activity acts for the sake of a final end. Now, the modern secular view is that there is no end of human activity, only many short-term goals that it's up to you to decide. But actually, that defies closer analysis. So St. Augustine, in his Confessions, when he's reflecting on his early life and his many meanderings and his seeking this and his seeking that and comparing that with all of human activity he says actually all men desire joy they all desire a blessed life that they all agree in desiring the last end which is happiness which in the Latin he's using is beatitude and I've clarified here all humans seek happiness but humans disagree as to where they think they will find happiness. They also disagree in terms of quite what happiness is, but they're all wanting to be happy. I said there in bold, no one seeks to be No one seeks to be unhappy. So even those who are perversely seeking misery do so because they seek some happiness. So the teenager who is in a sulk um, is sulking because they somehow are getting a pleasure out of sulking. And they've reduced the goal of happiness quite a lot. But actually they are seeking a kind of happiness in the sulk. Um, so what Augustine and Aquinas and Aristotle are all saying is that whatever we're doing, we're seeking even when we're confused about what we think happiness quite is, we're always seeking to be happy. This is what drives all of human activity. Well, where do you think you're going to get happiness? You think you're going to get happiness in something that looks good, looks attractive. That I get that thing and it will make me happy. That good. So this is the next little section here. The good. So St. Thomas says, whatever man desires, he desires it under the aspect of good, so that the formal end of every act of the will is goodness, and the material end of every specific act is a good, a specific thing, so that to achieve happiness, humans pursue goods. St. Augustine puts it, 
We only love that which is fair, beautiful, apt, and so forth. How do we know it's good? Well, that's... If you have that's no the, understanding... That's the next page. But um, <laughs> it somehow looks good, this is the point. And you, many times we're wrong. We pursue what's an apparent good, not a real good. But the reason we're pursuing it is it somehow looks good. I think <clears throat> that's going to be good for me. I want it's attractive, it's desirable somehow. I steal something because I think if I had that, that would be good for me. I might know it's forbidden, know it's morally wrong, but it looks good in the sense of looking desirable. But I might know that I might not think it's morally. Right. But the whole reason <coughs> but the whole reason you're attracted to it is it somehow looks good. It has this what Tom says, aspect of goodness, appearance yeah. of goodness. And if it had an appearance of ugliness, you wouldn't be interested. Mm. It's kind of the situation, wouldn't it? I've recently retired from the Royal Navy, and um, they said to me, would you like to extend for another five years? And I said, well, I don't want to do that. And I was like, well, you'll get a bigger pension, more money. And, uh, and I said, yeah, and what, and what sort of job would you need? We can continue doing what you're doing, but you senior role and it all looked good from the outside but it, it just wasn't there because I was looking for something deeper than that there was an unquestioned assumption that well, everyone wants more money don't they everyone wants a bigger pension don't they mm. and it was like oh no and I thought, no it's got to be deeper than that and so I can see that, the, that something looks good and attractive because it you know, we all need money certain things. It's in status and promotion, in, in the hierarchy of the, uh, of the, of the Royal Navy, that's our, that's our question. Everyone wants to be promoted, don't they? Mm. Because you'll be more important. You will have status and all those kinds of things. And, 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 when I, and when I said this back, when I questioned it, people looked at me and said, what's your problem? Mm. And it uh, didn't get any further than that, really. in a sense is an example of the next point I've got here. In what does happiness consist? Does it consist in the promotion, the bigger bank accounts, and so forth? So humans seek goods thinking that the possession of them will bring happiness. Um, and Aristotle, and then after him, Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, they all follow more or less the same methodology in that they then look at each single thing that humans devote themselves to getting different goods. And they all conclude, happiness does not consist in wealth, or honour, or fame, or glory, or power, or pleasure, neither in any created good, or any bodily good, or even any good of the soul, that none of these are sufficient to satisfy as the end. They are merely means to the end. It's only therefore the comprehensive good, the good that encompasses everything. The only good that can satisfy must be a comprehensive good encompassing all other goods, that therefore human happiness consists in God alone. So what that page is saying is that there is within us an inbuilt drive for happiness, 
that everything we're doing, we are seeking happiness. We don't choose to seek happiness, it's just what we are, like the plant that grows for the sun. We can choose where we think we will get happiness, and by our choices we do or don't get there. Um, but this drive within us to seek happiness isn't something we choose. It's just something we are built with. And we might say at a theological level, we are built for God, which we are seeking when we're seeking happiness. Um, but actually we are built, when you're analysing human behaviour at a kind of philosophical level without the help of the Bible, you just can see people seek happiness. Now before moving on, um, to make the observation, are we seeking God or are we seeking happiness? Um, now to us, those things seem distinct. Um, and that's because we are... Um, we have many different compartments to us, but God is what's called in philosophy called simple. He is everything is in Him in simplicity, and so for Him, the happiness of God isn't an attachment outside of God. It's just part of what He is. And when I am seeking happiness, even though I don't realize it, I am seeking God. I am seeking that thing that God possesses in His very self. Love is the thing that unites me to God. When I love something, I have union with it. And God, who is love, by my love of him, I have that union. And that union, that love, brings as the pleasure that completes it, spiritual joy. So that if in everything I am doing, I am loving, seeking God in that thing, I will achieve that happiness, that joy, that I might otherwise seek as something distinct from God. So what we gain from the Bible, from supernatural revelation, is the realisation that this quest for happiness isn't a rival quest of the quest for God. That it's found in the same thing. distinction between happiness and pleasure is one I struggle with. I went for a, a lovely cycle ride yesterday in the park. It was a lovely sunny day. It was very pleasurable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it made me happy. But is that pleasure under this definition? Then that's not good. Well, pleasure isn't bad, but pleasure... Um, The, the, in the terminology, classical terminology, pleasure would be associated with bodily things. So, um, whereas joy or beatitude is associated with spiritual things. Now, it's possible for me to have, um, it's just worth taking a moment on. Um, um, if we imagine joy here and sorrow here um, and pain here and pleasure here and this is all a graph with four points 
you can have joy in the midst of pain, this being physical and this being spiritual. Um, you can have pleasure with joy, spiritual pleasure with physical joy. But you can have sorrow with spiritual, with physical pleasure. So the man who is gluttonous and alone and just shoving in yet another donut, um, he has the physical pleasure, but he's sorrowful. So that joy and pleasure aren't enemies, but they don't necessarily go together. So the question of where love is, is what determines whether in the midst of your physical pleasure or pain, you have joy or you have pleasure. So even love, um, I'm enduring great pain for God, for someone I love, I will be experiencing joy even in the physical pain. But I might also be enjoying a donut with someone I love and experience joy and pleasure at the same time. So if I'm riding my bike and I come to the end of the bike ride, it has been a pleasurable experience, but I might actually be in agony because I'm in pain. I think there there's a slight a different dynamic in that you can yeah. have different physical pleasures and pains at the same time. Yeah. So I can have a hormonal pleasure rush that comes with the exercise of the cycle ride, even while my muscles are cramping up in agony. Um, but those are both, I would say, at the physical level, and might or might not go with spiritual joy or sorrow. So if I'm going on a pleasurable cycle ride, but all the time I'm cycling, I'm filled with anger and hatred of um, Mrs. Miggins in the parish who's giving me a hard time, then actually I don't have spiritual joy and I don't have love. And even though the experience otherwise would have physical pleasures about it, I'm in a state of sorrow. Whereas it could be the reverse. I'm not sure I've quite got there yet, but I'm thinking of St. John Vianney when he first went into his parish and he had a big down on, on all the dancing and the singing. Yeah. Because it was, it was, they were doing it for pleasure, and it was as if at that point in his ministry, pleasure was a bad thing, and, and that's where I'm struggling between happiness and pleasure. I guess. Surely things that you can do that are <coughs> pleasurable, but are not intrinsically evil, are okay. Uh, I think we need to remember Saint John Vianney. He also organised dances himself. Uh, so that at some point he's my understanding it is, but initially he didn't really use those ones. He's my understanding. But I think in a dance, in the same way you can go to, um, I would generally take it for granted if someone told me they were going to a nightclub, that they were going to a place where they'd be mixing with people who were going there to find promiscuous activity, mm. to do drugs, and to get blind drunk that there's a whole package there that goes with very serious sin. 
but that actually isn't intrinsic to dancing at a nightclub. So where that puts us pastry with St. John Vianney, I think it's the same mix. Or not, in terms of wanting to try and create a dance that is for good people. Or even if you went to a good dance, that was for going to the dance in order to get the, the pleasure, you would not necessarily be dancing in the right spirit. Sure, it depends on motive. Yeah, the, pleasure, the pleasure is accompanying the yeah. dancing, isn't it? It's, yes, yes. You know, it's not the end of dancing itself. We're doing the right sort of dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that there's a way of dancing that has twisted the pursuit of pleasure to be primary. Yeah, it's the gluttonous equivalent of eating. Right, right. What was your point? But, I mean, having said that, it depends. You see, dancing can also be cultural. It can be offensive to some people, and other people it's acceptable. So that's where it starts to get where, where you're looking at it from. Maybe just looking at this definition a little bit more, we said that happiness does not consist in wealth, honest, anger, balance, better. Is the previous line where it talks about six goods or possession, maybe that helps us to distinguish between the pleasure and the That the pleasure that's defined here is the yes. pleasure that comes from seeking goods and having possession of them, things that we think will bring us. And in this context, I think we need to be associating pleasure with material yeah, yeah. and yeah. joy with spiritual. Yeah. You see, I worked, I worked in, in a country and within a culture where lying, mm. white lying, was perfectly acceptable whether you're a Muslim, Christian, or whatever. You were in Rome, were you? No, <laughs> <laughs> no just across the water. No, in the Middle East. Right, okay. Where telling lies, mm. white lies, little lies, was was fully acceptable. And that was from the Christian population as well, because mm. they took on a culture. Yeah. Um, though, a mistake. Um, yeah. We're thinking there, I think, I want to move on to the next point about real and apparent goods. So things that look good but aren't really good. But the basic point of this page is all of human activity we are seeking happiness and a fulfilled person, a good person, is one who has found that happiness. And the real happiness is that in God that we acquire by love. Um, and that is the moral good. That is the moral good. And then the moral good is what we mean by good when we're talking about something achieving its function. But you get that happiness by getting a good thing. Now, <clears throat> some things sometimes look good, but they're not good. So that's the next page, page five of the notes. Can I just ask one? Sorry, yeah. Um, one of the things which it's... Um, one of the things which we often encounter on a day-to-day -day basis is the challenge 
that I can be morally good without God. I don't need God to be moral. I just want to chuck that in there at this stage because that's something which I wrestle, I, I, I have to deal with that quite often with people. And I can go some way to, because they, they, they obviously have that conversation with me because they know I have a faith and I believe mm. that we are only good with, with God. Whereas they would say, I can, I can, be, I can be good without God because I know it is intrinsically good. And I think if you come back to the question of function and purpose, why do you exist? Mm. Well, if you exist in order to be with God, then actually I can't be fully good without God. But I can eat well without God and that I can achieve that function well. Mm. There are many sub-activities I can do well, but the true end goal that properly integrates all of those, the good human achieves the function of a human. God. But the, it is true to say that you have et well, that you haven't et selfishly, that you have you can live in a good marriage without God, but you haven't achieved the higher good. Um, not talked to us about any distinction between natural and supernatural goods, mm -hmm. but that that's another distinction. So that you can at some level be pursuing natural goods truly, but not completely the way you would. It also case that you can be morally good at a humanist level, but that's certainly not the same as being morally good at the spiritual level um, or, or with, with God. But the, the difficulty is, you either do believe there is a God or you mm. don't. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, I end. That's the common ground if you can agree to part on in the conversation. Sorrowfully, because I would, I would wish that people do believe, mm -hmm. but clearly people have chosen not to believe, and I find this comes up on a regular basis. Well, in my own family, actually, um, uh, I'll say, well, but I, and I, I end up leaving the conversation feeling feeling sad because there's no hope in it. So some people believe in God, but they don't know they believe. Rather anonymous Christian. Yeah. And so when they are saying I can be good, they are saying without realizing it that they they can know God. They just don't recognize it. They, and I've got, they and don't I've, articulate I've it. I have put that to people. Yeah. Because it, it's a way of being generous, isn't it? Yeah. Um, however, I've met I've also been met with don't patronize me. I know yes. I believe. Yeah. And I don't believe in God. And yeah. I, and I'm thinking and I can think, but you do really. But if they don't, and they have a free choice because they've been cre created free to choose, as mm -hmm. I believe God creates us, mm -hmm. then they are exercising that choice. Yeah. Um, but it can sound patronising, I agree. But mm -hmm. So if they feel patronised, then you, then you need to say, well, I, I, you can be good, and you are good, and I recognise your goodness, but you can't give a very good account of why you want to be good, or how you're achieving goodness. Come over to my side, and you'll be able to see it better. What do you think of the idea of the Sorry. We could get through this. But I think it's one of the biggest mistakes of the 20th century yeah. uh, theology. Um, yeah. That it's um, 
confuses a number of things that need yeah. to remain yeah. distinct. So, so that anonymous Christianity. That, that you can be truly good about some things, but that doesn't mean you actually are the same thing yeah. as the person in grace who, who has seen and pursued the supernatural. Because it's the end to which it's like the good action is directed. Yes, and that changes actually everything. Mm-hmm. I want to focus this on the question of real and apparent goods and sin. This will be the last thing we do before lunch. So this is page five of the notes. Hopefully not sin at lunch. Okay, sin says, title of the page, sin, a perversion of the quest for the good. So you're still seeking the good somehow, but in a perverted way. As noted previously, the good, St. Thomas said, whatever man desires, he desires it under the aspect, the appearance of good. St. Augustine, we only love that which is fair, beautiful, apt, and so forth. As the Catechism puts it, only the good can be loved. You don't love it because it's ugly. You love it because it somehow looks attractive and good. Note that nominalism and modernity deny this because they think we are inherently free rather than acknowledging that human nature has inherent, li- inherent limits and inherent structures i.e. that we move, only move towards what is somehow attractive. So sin occurs, I've said that, sin occurs when we choose good evil. We are choosing good, but somehow doing it in an evil manner. Now how does that happen? Well, St. Thomas gives two different ways that it happens. Firstly, when we choose an apparent good instead of a real good. And note, as I said, uh, that doesn't mean we think it's morally good. So morally good is kind of a different use of the word good. An apparent good instead of a real good. It looks good to me. It appears good to me. I might know it's forbidden. I might know it's a sin. But it still appears attractive. Well, the example St. Thomas gives, an apparent good. We view adultery as something desirable i.e. is good. How, he says, we choose this delight of an inordinate act as something good to be performed now rather than as something to be performed at another time or as something to be performed by another person. And why do we do that? He says, evil passions or evil habits can cloud the intellect so you don't think properly, leading to erroneous or ignorant, or willfully erroneous judgments. And he notes we are frequently blameworthy for such judgments, and this can be a matter of mortal sin. Whereas good passions and good habits help clarify the intellect, so that I see the good accurately. So enable me to distinguish between apparent goods and real goods. The second way that we choose good in an evil manner is we choose something good in itself, but not according to proper measure or rule. So this is due to a choice which is not properly regulated. I've given three examples there. We pray when we should be studying. So the seminarians often will have this thing, they'll be sat in their desk in their room, and suddenly feel called down to the chapel. You know, anything to avoid what kind of proper measure says they should be doing at that time. So praying is good. But actually what you should be doing now is study. 
So something that appears good, but out of measure, out of proper place, ends up not being good. Maybe a more obvious example, we play games when we should be working. So that playing games, again, is a good thing in itself when it's in proper measure, proper order, proper place. But playing games isn't the purpose of life. It has, to, it has as its function enabling us to rest, recuperate, perform the rest of our life. Third example, we eat ten donuts, not one. So, you know, dessert is part of life. Um, good thing, but it has to be in proper measure. And St. Thomas says, such a sin, as any of these examples, does not presuppose ignorance, but absence of consideration of the things which ought to be considered. And as in the first category, this can be willful, and can be a matter of mortal sin. So this phrase, absence of consideration, is actually rather serious. Can we look at page uh, footnote 23 there on that page? Just to focus what this absence of consideration means. It's actually something very serious. So Satan, footnote 23 here. Satan fell by an absence of consideration. And that his sin consisted in choosing to contemplate only his own wondrous being, he was Lucifer, the angel of light, and refusing to gaze upon the infinite splendor of the vision of God, which is the sin of pride, refusing to be subject to a superior where subjection is due, seeking to be like God and being subject to no one. So like anyone else, if Satan had even once beheld the beatific vision, he would have been so completely satisfied that he would have been confirmed in good, and sin would no longer have been an option. No one would turn from an infinite good to some finite good. True beatitude includes stability in beatitude, or else it would be neither everlasting life nor true beatitude. And such a statement is not a restriction on freedom, but an indication of what true freedom is seeking. Fulfillment in a good that will satisfy. So, Satan, what is the good he seeks? Gazing on his own beauty, which is incredible, and refusing to look at God. If he'd even once looked at God, he'd have been so satisfied, he wouldn't then have looked away. But the absence of considering what he should have considered, namely God, is a big thing. So, to refuse to think about my actions properly in a way that I see the difference between the real and the apparent good, in a way that I see that this good is not in proper measure, is very serious, and is how all of us are. Have you understand the impulsive action? Impulsive action can be sometimes when we just refuse to think about something. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I suppose we know what I'm talking about is um, something like anger, for example. Somebody. Um, it, we're, we're irritated by something and we suddenly lash out or do something or what French we call the crime of passion mm-hmm. something which, which where there's absence of forethought it's, it's in, the, on, on the spur, in the spur of the moment it is then an evil act yes. the extent to which you're blameworthy for it is another question 
So evaluating the act in terms of achieving the end, mm. it's failed because the impulse has stopped you truly discerning what the act is, mm. seeing good and real, uh, seeing real anchors. But whether you're blameworthy for it, there'll be other factors. Yeah. One of the things though with virtue is recognizing that we are responsible for our passions and by how we habituate ourselves. So if I habitually restrain my anger, I learn to control and direct it, yeah. rather than it overpowering me. So I mean fortitude. Yes. Any comments on this page? This whole thing of... as it would actually change my behaviour. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the point of making a decision. Interesting, the example of rape, the use of rape in warfare, because it is considered um, almost expected yeah. that a conquering force would rape and pillage as part of the spoils of war, because that is a way to subject Okay, so what we've looked at this morning is a general thing about what we're looking at in moral theology. Uh, it's about how to get to the end in God. How all human activity is seeking something, seeking happiness, which, whether we realise it or not to begin with, is actually the same as the seeking for God. And that even when we sin, we are seeking something that somehow appears good, even though it's not really good. And that this is a perversion of the quest for the good, the quest for God. And that part of the remedy of that is to think more clearly, bring grace to bear on it, um, and then we'll find the right thing. 
So now time for 